Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources, and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more to the image of Christ. It is my normal practice to begin my sermons with some sort of illustration, some sort of sort of story uh, that I draw from common experiences. Uh, and for these, this illustration to get us all thinking on a similar page, we're all coming from different, a variety of different things, and our brains are doing different things. So I like to give a little illustration that helps us thinking in the same place, but not only thinking in the same way, but being prepared to receive the point of the text of Scripture being preached in such a way that faith and obedience are primed in a manner of speaking. Uh, I want to do something slightly different this morning and share a little from my personal struggles. I even want to confess some sin to you as a way of preparing us to receive the text in a humble and grateful manner. My aim and my goal, again, is to get us prepared to receive the word with, with faith but I want to do something slightly different, and uh, I do have concerns about being so personal, um, but it is my hope that my transparency doesn't distract, but that it builds a bridge between you and our text for this morning. I don't want you thinking about me uh, for the next hour or really at all. Uh, I want you to be thinking about the Lord, but, but it is my hope that what the Lord has done in me will be a blessing to you. I have no hesitations in admitting that I have lived a privileged life. The Lord has blessed my whole life with a hedge of protection from many losses and many trials, and he has filled my days with many, many good things. God has been incredibly gracious to me, and I don't just say that. I know that, and it's true. Yet, in the midst of his incredible generosity to me, there have been trials and difficulties. I have received the condolences of friends and many, many people have prayed for me during hardships and difficulties. Uh, this is no unique admission. Every one of you should be able to say, yeah, that's, that's true of me too. God has been generous to all people. And all of us live in an environment that is under God's curse. Trials and blessings mark life for all humans. Blessings and troubles are true for all of us. But my confession to you this morning my confession of sin to you is that my trials, that in my trials, I've not only asked God to explain what he's doing, as if God needs to get my permission, but I've carried a spirit of frustration with him for not doing the things I want him to do or doing things in a way that I didn't want him to do them. I'm confessing personal of me. I'm not quoting anyone. I'm not reading from a book. This is Drew speaking to you. I'm confessing sinful pride that expects the Almighty to get my permission first. And I'm confessing a fleshly ugliness that is insanely slow to accept that God's shaping of my life is better than my own. And that the pain that he has brought my way is better than what I had planned for myself. My sin is first and foremost against my Lord, but I know 
that this sin has been beneath a lot of other sin, of which some of you have been offended by, and it is my hope that as I seek the Lord's forgiveness for my trespasses, you will forgive me of my trespasses against you. When us preachers get behind the pulpit and work to convince you of the beauty of Jesus and his debt-canceling work at the cross, I hope you know that it is no act. It is no show when Brian or Michael or myself get up here and proclaim the beauty of Jesus and his debt-canceling work at the cross. I, for one, am a deeply guilty and polluted man who is desperately lost and condemned apart from Christ. I'm not preaching right now, I'm confessing to you. The sins of my youth condemn me and the hidden attitudes of my heart are damning apart from the saving work of Jesus. I'm motivated to make this confession this morning because all of us at one time or another want God to speak to us about our trials. We want him to answer the question, why? We want him to speak to us in our pain and confusion. And in the midst of this wanting, I have sinned. But what we have here in Job 38, at the end of Job, is God actually responding to Job's messy and desperate desires for God to speak. Every one of us has messy prayers. Every one of us has been desperate for God to speak. But unlike me, God actually verbally came to Job and spoke to him. And so as we walk through this chapter, I hope you will see First and foremost, how God's response is a unique and precious gift to Job. I want you to see, wow, what a gift Job is receiving here. But I pray you'll also see how this divine reply is a unique and precious gift to you and to everyone else in this room with you. The big idea that I want to draw out of this text this morning is that God's glory is our treasure in grief. God's glory is our treasure in grief. We saw last week how verse, in verse 1 how Yahweh graciously yet powerfully answered Job's messy prayers. And now this week we will attend to what God says. As we look at God's rebuttal this morning, I hope you will remember what we highlighted last week. That though God does not ignore sin, he truly is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This response that we are seeing here in Job 38 is intense. There's no getting around it. But it is an accurate display of God's holy love. I want you to see that. There is holiness that we are encountering here. Otherness, this is beyond superhumanness that we are seeing in God's response. But I hope in seeing holiness you don't miss the love that is being expressed. I want to highlight two distinct sections this morning, two points if you're taking notes. First, I want to look at God's humbling invitation in verses 2 and 3. And then in verses 4 through 38, I want to look at God's glorious instruction. 
It's my hope that you'll enjoy the treasure of God's glory for yourself. I hope that as we look at God's self-revelation in these verses, you'll, you'll simply enjoy seeing God as he describes himself. And that my second hope is that you will be equipped to take this glory to others as a comforter or a counselor to them in their grief as well. I hope that we are empowered to worship God, and I hope that we are empowered to love our neighbor and fellow church members. Okay, for repetition's sake, point number one, God's humbling invitation. Point number two, God's glorious instruction. Let's look at point number one together, God's humbling invitation. We read God's voice say in verses two and three, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. In this invitation, the first of many questions is posed to Job. Remember that Job is a bereaved man. He's a man who's lost much and is also covered from head to toe in loathsome sores. When God asks, who is this that darkens counsel with with words without knowledge, God isn't confused about who's speaking to him. God is fully aware of who Job is, even before all these trials began, even before all these messy prayers began. God is not concerned with learning who's speaking to him. No, God is responding fully with Job's many questions, Job's many concerns, and even Job's slanderous supposings. His supposings that God doesn't govern the world rightly or justly. In his grief, Job wondered where God was and what was going on. And there was a curiosity that crossed a line, was offensive to God, because it supposed that God wasn't doing his job rightly. And so God responds in this manner. As Job has defended his imperfect devotion to God against his miserable friend's accusations, he has said more than is right about God's good and wise providence. This record of righteous Job's failings should help all of us see how we all fall short in this area and need God's correcting and forgiving grace. We should see Job as a righteous man suffered and then said things he shouldn't have, thought things he shouldn't have, and all of us should be able to say, Yep, I'm right there with him. If Job can fall, so can I. God succinctly defends his honor, and then he corrects Job by telling him that his words about God's rule have been full of ignorance that has only muddied the waters of what is true. Who is this who speaks words without knowledge? God doesn't deal with each of Job's questions. He doesn't list all of his Errors, God simply broad brushes and says, Who has darkened counsel with words without knowledge? God doesn't deal with each and every of Job's questions, but instead he mercifully humbles Job by dealing with him as a person who didn't know what he was talking about. There's a sting. There's a sting in God's assessment of Job, of his quick dealing with Job. It stings. But there's also mercy that treats Job like a child that didn't know what he was talking about. I want you to see here a word that was unpleasant. 
God's response to Job is unpleasant. But this unpleasant word is the unpleasant disciplinary word of a father who says, Hey, child, you're talking about things you don't understand. But I'm going to treat you like the child that you are. I'm going to treat you like the dummy that you are. And we're going to walk through some things and you're going to learn some stuff today. Okay? There's sting here, but there's also incredible mercy. In verse 3, it is made clear that God is lovingly correcting his stumbling friend and not condemning a hopeless case. I like to use those two categories. A lot of people come into the church and they un- misunderstand correction with condemnation. These two things are different. A loving parent will correct you. A loving church will correct you. God, in his love for his people, corrects regularly. But correction and condemnation are two different things. And I want you to understand that. And sometimes we don't receive correction very well. And we assume that correction is condemnation. Hey, I'm simply saying that if we added more meat to this dish, it would taste better. I'm not saying you're a terrible cook. And some of us say, if you say anything about improving my abilities, it's a total condemnation, right? So if that is your bent, it's that your temptation for somebody to say something corrective and you receive it as, as condemnation, I'm saying you have to have two different categories here. This isn't condemnation, but it is most definitely correction. God is correcting his friend. He's not condemning a hopeless case. God says in verse 3, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. We shouldn't read this verse without an intimidating tone. This is intimidating. Not intimidation, but it is intimidating. But let me remind you that this kind of interaction is incredibly rare. And it's limited, not to people that God hates, but to people that God loves. This is rare, intimidating interaction, but it is a rare interaction reserved for people God is showing mercy to. Adam was loved by God, and when he broke God's commands, God spoke with him. Those words were stinging words, but those words were saving words. God lovingly went to Adam and corrected him. God graciously spoke with Noah, but God didn't speak with those who would die in the flood. Do you understand the distinction that's happening here? This is a hard word to hear, but better to hear it than to not hear it. Lot, Abraham's nephew, received God's call to repent. And at the same time, the people of Sodom were silently destroyed. They didn't hear an intimidating word of mercy They were simply buried in fire and brimstone. Jacob spent his latter years walking with a limp, but only because God mercifully wrestled with him. The Israelites were told to dress for action while they ate the first Passover, but that work was a liberating work only God could enable and empower. It was sinful Israel that God came to in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and he said, come now. Let us reason together. This personal engagement with God was filled with kindness. Kindness in which God said to these sinners, 
Come, let us reason together. And then he would go on to say, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The point that I hope we all see in these challenging words of verse 3 is that though they sting our pride, they are full, brimming, overflowing with welcome and invitation to know God better. I've heard people say that the opposite of love is not hate, but the opposite of love is not caring. The opposite of love is not even thinking about it, thinking about you. God could have just, whatever, Job, some idiot saying dumb things. No, God lovingly corrects him. God lovingly comes to him. There's a stinging of pride, absolutely. But this is an invitation to know God better. None of us enjoy when God's word exposes us as fools. Anybody willing to uh, look me in the eye and, and, and tell me that you've experienced when God's word exposed you as a fool, corrected you, called you out for something you had been doing and shouldn't have been doing. It's unpleasant. It's not fun when the scriptures come and they expose us. Many people refuse the good news of friendship with God through faith in Jesus because it requires a humble admission that we're not God and that we've made a mess of our lives. As God graciously responded to Job's pained prayers, Job's first experience was one of humbling Job was lowered. Job was brought to a clearer understanding of himself, and the first thing that he had to experience was that he thought too highly of himself and of his estimation of things. Job endured the difficulty of God exposing his ignorance, but in exposing his ignorance, God tenderly invited him to greater understanding. You've got to be able to sense two different things at the same time. If you're the person who says, I feel humbled, I'm getting out of here, I don't care what else is going on, you're going to miss the beauty of God drawing Job closer. But if you can receive both of these things, that God comes near him, he humbles him, but he humbles him so that he draws him closer to know him better. All of us will find our ego standing at odds with the way God rules the world and the way God orders our lives. Every Christian has been humbled to some degree or another, but our walk with Christ will pass through many, many seasons of greater humbling. Those who refuse Christ as Savior and Lord do so because they don't want to receive God's humbling invitation. As Job experiences God's humiliating invitation, we need to know that we are also called to know God better through a path of humiliation. God never stings his children with trials and confusions from any motivation other than love. Hear me. God never humbles, never corrects, never stings his children with any other motivation than love. Hebrews 12 says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
Anybody know what it's like to be weary when the Lord reproves you? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's humbling when God chooses not to give you a spouse or children when you expect him to. It can be embarrassing when people ask if you're still at the same job. When are you going to buy a house can be a hard question you renters have to answer. Repeating the same prayer requests can be rough, and asking a wise church member for parenting or marriage counsel can be embarrassing. But if the Lord gives difficulty to his beloved children, then life's humiliations are far more than they appear to be. If God gives humiliating, humbling situations to those he loves as a means of drawing them closer, then it's not just a trial you're going through. It's not just a rough patch you're going through. It's not just depression. It's not just anxiety. It's not just long-term illness. If God humbles and humiliates us on the way to showing us his glory, then those difficulties look extremely different, don't they? There's a bumpy road to grandma's house. If you know grandma's house is at the end of that bumpy road, you endure the bumpy roads. We're on the way to grandma's house. Saints, the scriptures tell us clearly that God humbles his children as he draws them near. Job is being humbled through difficulty. God's correcting word is coming to Job on the way to showing him his glory. Saints, God humbled Job before he gave him the treasure of knowing him better and abiding with him more intimately. Consider your past, current, and future humiliations in this light. God humbles every son and daughter that he receives. It might have been 20 years ago, that thing that happened, that you're having a hard time getting over, moving past. But you can look back on that and say, The Lord brought that into my life to draw me closer to him. That wasn't meaningless. That wasn't accidental. The Lord uses that hardship to draw me closer to himself. The hardships you fear in the future, the same sort of things. Saints, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and God will never sting you with difficulty for any other reason than his loving desire to draw you closer to himself. If you're hearing me this morning and you're not a Christian, I simply want to ask you to consider this. Is your pride keeping you from the great pleasure of friendship with God? Something so cheap, so simple as your your high estimation of yourself and what you believe that you deserve, that can keep you from enjoying the friendship that God offers to us in Christ. And I'm simply asking you, is your pride standing in the way of you enjoying friendship with God? Humbling ourselves can be terribly difficult, but I would hate for you to miss out on eternal life because you are simply unwilling to humble yourself before your maker. God humbles Job, yet draws him closer in his initial response. And so let's look now as Job receives a little divine tutoring, okay? Let's look at point number two, God's glorious instruction. 
God's responses to Job in chapters 38 through 41 take him on a tour of God's creation and his control of that creation. What we're going to see in these chapters 38 through 41 are a tour of God's creative power and his creative and controlling power at work in what he has made. In verses 4 through 38 of this 38th chapter, we see a focus on God's inanimate creations. Why did we stop at verse 38? Because in verse 39, there's a move to looking at living creatures, and we'll deal with that next time. But for now, in these first 38 verses, there's a dealing with things that aren't living beings. Though excuse me, through a long list of rhetorical questions, God mercifully helps Job see his own ignorance. God could have beaten Job down with a quick and cold reply. Boom. Slap on the face. He could have called him an idiot and said, get yourself together. No. God strings a long list of rhetorical questions These rhetorical questions aren't quick and cold. Instead, God is settling in. He's taking his jacket off, so to speak, and saying, we're going to have a full lecture this morning. And he says, I'm going to give you a long answer to help you understand the glory that you are not seeing. God takes the long path of caring about what Job thinks and how he gets there. He wants Job to see God's glory and to see his suffering in light of it. And he doesn't just do it quickly. He does it over a long series of rhetorical questions. And rhetorical questions are, it can be used a number of different ways, but rhetorical questions reveal a desire for you to come to an understanding in your own, in your own for yourself. Right? God doesn't say, here are the facts, write them down, memorize them, regurgitate them on the exam. He says, let me ask you a question, and you respond. Come to an understanding of what we're dealing with here so that you can see things rightly. Uh, In verses 4 through 7, God asks Job if he watched, if he watched as God laid the foundations of the earth or made sure everything was measured according to plan. God asks Job if he knows how everything holds together or if he is aware of the joy in heaven that was there when God built everything that exists. Now again, it's important that we see these questions, these rhetorical questions, have a particular effect. Because Job's not going to be able to answer any of them. He doesn't know the answer of any of them. And neither do you or me. Even with the advantage of all the studies and all the science books and all the different things that we have that Job didn't have, we don't have the answers to these questions. Job's grief has given him tunnel vision, and he's become blind to the immense good that exists in God's construction and governance. You and I can get so focused on our complaints that we fail to see that God's world really is reliable and full of beauty. Have you ever experienced tunnel vision? Have you ever experienced some level of, of your sight just shrinking? I'm told as we get older, Brian, Brian tells me what old people are going through. Uh, and so uh, he goes ahead of me, I guess. But uh, that's really not true. Um, but you lose your peripheral vision. 
You lose a sense of what's going on on the periphery. And you know, whether it be entertainment, whether it be suffering, a whole host of things can get you so focused on one thing that you don't even hear your wife's voice, you don't hear the child crying, you, don't smell, you literally don't smell the diaper that's right there. You're so focused on the game, you're so focused on something, it's all as if it wasn't there. Suffering has this great power to make you think like, all I can see is what I'm frustrated with. All I can see is what that person said to me. All I can think about is this one particular thing. And Job has this tunnel vision, and God says, you've become blind to the fact that I've constructed the, the earth that you're standing on. You've become unaware that I am governing the body that is aching right now. You and I can do the same sort of thing. We become so ignorant, so blind that God is governing the world and that there is so much reliable, faithful provision in the world that God has made. And not only that, but it's beautiful. Depression or anxiety or stress can cause you to only see your to-do list or only to see the thing that's missing. All the while, someone served you this beautiful meal that smells good, that tastes good, that feels good all the way down, and it nourishes your life, and you don't even notice it. And God is saying, hey, you've got tunnel vision. I want you to see that there's a lot other stuff going on in the world, and a lot of good going on in the world, a lot of beauty. This world really, truly is dangerous. Don't get me wrong as some pie-in-the-sky person that thinks life on planet Earth is always fun. I'm not saying that. This world really is dangerous. But consider, hurricanes don't come every day. They don't. Charleston floods all the time. No, it doesn't. Downtown Charleston doesn't need a lot of water for it to flood. But it doesn't always flood. There's a lot of good in the world that often gets overlooked. Most trips, most of them, don't end in deadly car accidents. Even under the, the curse, we attend far more birthdays and funerals. Consider, like, these are facts. The question first came to Job and now comes to us. Do you understand how God carefully crafted the universe out of absolutely nothing? Smart guys like Pastor Brian will say, creation ex nihilo. What does that mean? And he'll give you a wonderful sermonette without any, without any preparation. And he'll talk to you about the glories of God creating out of nothing. But Brian can't explain it. No one can. No one has ever created something out of nothing. It doesn't happen except God did it. Everything that it exists existed once as, as nothing. It was in God's mind. God spoke it, and now it, there it is. You can't understand that. And for some reason, God in his wisdom comes to a suffering man and says, do you understand how I made something out of nothing? Explain to me creation ex nihilo. Do you get it? Talk to me about the world. Talk to me about life before there was light. Hmm. 
God comes to Job and he says, did you witness the angels as they celebrated my creative masterpiece? All heaven rejoices, we are told in verse 7. They shouted for joy. The only right answer for you, for me, for Job is no. We don't get it. We can't reproduce this glorious work of creation out of nothing, but we try to copy its goodness. Even if we wouldn't say that it's good, every day we try to copy the goodness of God's creative glory when we carefully try to follow a recipe, when we follow the Lego instructions. Kids, you follow the Lego instructions. You are mimicking the God of the universe who built When we check and double check and triple check the schematic drawings of an electrical layout, we understand that creation is good, that God did a good thing when he built. And we are simply trying to follow his footsteps. Even if we deny that there is no God, you and I know a little, but we really have no clue how God did and does what he has done. We can say an awful lot of theological answers and we can quote verses and we can give you an awful lot of information about creation and about existence and biology, but at the end of the day, we can't, we can't explain how he did it, how he does it. We understand that there's a quote-unquote law of gravity, but how does God keep that law? How does God keep that gravity going day after day after day after day after day after day after day, after day moment after moment? We want to make people laugh and we want to bring happiness with our work, but God alone has done work that brings perfect joy to the heavenly hosts. God's drawing Job in. He's humbled him so that he can draw him closer. And you and I are being drawn in closer. And God says, the first thing you need to understand is that you don't understand how I do what I do. You don't know. In verses 8 through 11, God asks Job if he knows how the oceans were born. Or what keeps them from flooding the entire world? He asks Job, who controls the weather and keeps it in its proper place? You and I simply assume that the beach is in the same place it was the last time we saw it. And we think nothing of storm clouds passing through and leaving everything wet but not destroyed. Sometimes our lives feel completely chaotic and out of control, but... Friends, listen, God is skillfully sustaining life with lots of water wisely placed that he rules over every little bit of it. If God took a day off of keeping the oceans where they are, you and all, we would be, we'd be dead. If God took a long lunch break during a rainstorm, we would all be dead. If God took, took his sweet time getting into work, the whole world would be gone through a drought because God didn't send the rains as we need. You and I lose sleep as we fret about all the things we can't control, but God points us to the waters and says, it all listens to me. In verses 12 through 15, God points to the great story of creation. The great story that creation tells of God's rule over evil and wicked men. God asks Job, who tells the sun to rise? 
Some smarty pants in the room might say, well, the sun doesn't technically rise. The earth orbits around the sun, and it only appears to rise. Now, the point that God is making here is who tells the sun to do its job? You and I think that the sun just does what it does, but God is saying, no, the sun responds to commands, my commands. He then asks Job if he understands the deeper meaning of the sunrise and the sunset and as it pertains to sin in the world. When God causes the sun to rise, we are told the wicked go home. They pause their thievery. We have motion activated lights in our yard because we know at least some bad guys will leave when the lights come on. Their secrecy is ended and their strength is no more. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God has ordained a time called night and a time called day And this is teaching us a different truth, a fuller truth, that God has ordained a time for the wicked to commit their sin. But as the sun rises, God's creation declares that that time will come to an end. The chaos depicted by the sea and the wickedness displayed in darkness are all under God's control. We should have an understanding not only that the sea is under God's control, but the chaos in the whole world is under God's control. We should understand that the darkness of night is under God's control, but we should also understand that the evil that is perpetrated during the dark hours is also under God's control. When Revelation 21 verse 1 says, the sea was no more in the new heavens and the new earth, we are being told that the chaos and destruction that the sea represents is done away with in glory. We shouldn't think of the new heavens and a new earth with no bodies of water in it. What's being communicated is the chaos and the death and the destruction that are represented there are no more. When Revelation 21 verse 23 says, New Jerusalem, quote, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, we are learning that the day of evildoers and secret schemes will come to a complete and total end when the day of Christ appears. Some of us look at that and we think, oh, no sunrises, no sunsets in glory, that's sort of a weird thing. What's being communicated is that wickedness is done. It doesn't exist. Chaos, disorder, disruption, all of the stuff that messes up beauty and glory and goodness, it's done away with. But in the meantime, God is teaching Job, and we are being taught that when the sun rises and the sun sets, we're being reminded God is in control of the evil in the world. God is control of the good in the world. In verses 16 through 18, God asked Job about the deepest parts of the sea and the hidden realities of death and what actually goes on after our earthly lives end. There are mysteries beyond our reach in the depth of the ocean and discoveries are regularly being made. We can learn some of what is hidden in the dark waters, but we are powerless to explore life beyond the grave. We can get bigger batteries and bigger lights that go down into the waters and we can learn stuff and discover things that are living in places, but nobody ever goes into death and comes out to tell us what they found. 
No light bulb goes there. No vehicle goes there. We've sent cameras and lights into Mariana's trench, but all we know is what God has told us about our friends who have passed away. We like to talk sometimes like we know what's waiting on the other side of death, but in reality it's frightening because all we know, all anybody knows is what God has told them about it. In verses 19 through 21, God speaks of light and darkness. And through poetry, he clarifies that the earth isn't a finely tuned watch running on its own power. The earth may neatly orbit around the sun, but it is God who guides the planets in their courses. That illustration of a neatly wound watch is one taken from deism, and many of us in this room would say, I'm no deist. But do you often think of God's creation as being on autopilot? Just sort of rolling and God's watching it happen? Do you often think of your life as just sort of dominoes falling one after the other? Or do you think of God as being actively involved in the direction that everything takes? God is telling Job that God directs it all. You and I may steer our vehicles or briefly spin a basketball on our fingers, but God asks us to consider the glory of his steering of light and dark. When we encounter pain and evil, we can be quick to doubt God's wisdom and goodness, but every day of our depression, the sun rises. Every day of our anguish, the sun sets. God rules over all of it. Light and dark, good and evil, all are happening under his perfect control. Do we understand that? Not really. I, I understand the words that are being said there. But do we understand the magnitude of what's being communicated? No, we are being humbled and we are being brought in closer to the Lord and we are learning things that are are beyond our mind's capacity to understand. But what is clearly being stated is that God rules over all of it. Discouraged friend, hear me. Did the sun come up this morning? Is the sun shining right now? That is proof to you that God is taking care of you. That is proof that God knows what you need. That it's proof that God cares and is good and faithful. Does that dramatically change the circumstances you're going through? Depends on if you believe that or not. God asks Job in chapter 38 verses 22 through 24, he asks him if he has seen the snow and hail that God has stockpiled for a chosen day, or if he's seen God's perfect reserves for future wars. Some of us have a prepper's mentality, and God assures us that he has everything needed for what will come. Scotty, you're hoping this and that don't happen, right? Because you aren't prepared for that. God is prepared for everything that will happen. Resources are already there. 
for the wickedness that will come, the good that will be needed, God has already prepared it. We, like Job, are humbled. But what an encouraging lesson to learn that God has already made provision for every catastrophe that will come. Do I have enough insurance? Do I have enough life insurance? Do I have enough uh, savings account? Do I have this, that, and the other? Have I done? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And you can lo- I'm, We're starting to get a little heartburn right now, aren't we? Deep breath. God has already accounts set up for everything that's going to come, and he already has it all situated. Part of me just wants to stop there and say, like, let's just give our brains a rest. This is remarkable. God doesn't have one account that he doesn't need. His line item accounts, I'm using imagery here, right? He's got all of the accounts that he's going to need filled. What a remarkable God. Every catastrophe, it's already prepared. In verses 25 through 27, God informs Job that he builds the roads every raindrop and lightning bolt travel on in their journey to nurture even the most uninhabited places on the earth. As I was trying to put a a clear sentence together for this this morning as I'm wrapping up my writing, look at that in verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? To cleft a channel means to carve or to create a pathway for it. So there's, there's, it's being communicated here that God is building a road for every raindrop. Graham, can you wrap your head around that, buddy? Every raindrop that travels from beginning to end, is following a clearly cut path for it. Every raindrop. Go home and turn your sprinkler on. Wow. When God said, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, Job's mind may have throbbed as he tried to imagine the massive roadmap for even a small rain shower. God creates the path for all of it. In verses 28 and 30 through 30, God again informs Job that water comes into being by his wise power and even freezes solid by his good governance. Water doesn't exist without God saying, exist. Water doesn't become hard as ice without God causing it to do that. That dramatically changes the way you drink a glass of ice water. Like go home. Some of you have one of those cool fridges where you push the button and water comes out and ice comes out. Probably ice first and then water, right? God made the water that's pouring into your glass. And the ice is solid and cools your drink because God said so. And so often we just, I'm thirsty, I want to get some cold water. So depressed, God doesn't know I'm here. Water exists because God made it for us. Water freezes and becomes nourishing because God 
says so. God fathered your drink and delivered its temperature. In verses 31 through 33, there are a number of references to starry constellations. Pleiades and Orion, Mazaroth, and the bear with its children are names given to groups of awesome burning lights in space that God poetically describes as if they were lapdogs on a leash. In verses 34 through 38, God repeats his question about governing creation, and he asks Job if he knows who gave him the capacity to have this conversation. Job, your parents taught you to speak, they taught you to read, but who gave you the capacity to do that? Who created the human mind such that it could learn to read and learn to speak We have to wind down our time for today, but God is only getting started in his instruction. This is just the beginning. Friends, your eyeballs were created to do far more than read text on a computer screen. Your ears were given to you for much more than supporting your sunglasses. Your brains were designed to do significantly more than decide who you think will win the Super Bowl. God gave you eyes, ears, a nose, the ability to touch and study and examine and dissect and memorize so that you would know his awesome power and unmeasurable goodness as it is displayed in all that he has made. As God takes Job to meteorology class and astronomy class, the lesson becomes more and more clear. Hear me. Our frustrations with the ways of God and the ways that he governs our lives are woefully ignorant. If you walk away from this and you want to catch me in the hall and say, Drew, I I think you misspoke and da-da-da-da, like, you're, you're missing the point. The point of what God is communicating is that if we're frustrated with God, we don't understand. There's a lot we don't understand. We only understand a tiny little piece of what God is doing in the world, and so for us to come to a settled conviction that God is not good is foolish. That's why I wanted to confess that to you. I hate the sin of my heart that says, God, you're doing it wrong. Maybe I don't say that publicly, but in my inward frustration with the way the Lord has done particular things, I am revealing that I am a fool. God knows what he's doing more than we could ever understand. When we get angry with the way things go, we are critiquing things too wonderful for us to comprehend. When our eyes and thoughts look with lustful and covetous desire, we are judging God's wise provision as if it were flawed. When we greedily tend to our own desires, storing up treasures and resources instead of serving God, we show our incredible ignorance of God's good capacity to take care of us. Job was frustrated and confused in his grief, and you and I get there too. And God's correction is this humbling lesson that your thoughts of God are too small. It may not feel like the most tender word to speak to a suffering person this morning, but what God is saying to us in our grief is that our thoughts of God are too small. You think too little about God. Your thoughts of God are too small. 
Our lives are far more beautifully designed than we understand. Even when it rains, God is doing things beyond our wildest imagination. If you are God's friend, there is no good reason to worry or fear. I'm going to say that one more time. If you are God's friend, there is no good reason to worry or fear. Paul said of Jesus, our rescuer, in Colossians 1, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Saints, through the work of Christ, you and I have been reconciled to the God of all creation. He who rules over darkness and light, evil and good, has become our father and friend. Has the cross become boring to you? What Christ has done at the cross and the empty tomb has bridged the gap between me, between you, and the God who holds all things together. It makes us friends with him. Let me encourage you. Let's humbly repent of our frustration. Confess your sins to one another and be healed. Ask the Lord to forgive you for your frustration with the way he has run your life and runs the world. Let's wisely quit worrying. Let's not drown our anxieties in alcohol or ice cream or shopping. Let's drown our fears in the awesome magnitude of our great God who governs every little thing. Think deeply about God and your worries change. Think deeply about God and your depression changes. Think truthfully about God and everything changes. God lovingly answered Job's prayers by humbling him and drawing him closer. And in the Lord's Supper, God does something very similar. In this meal that we are about to enjoy, we are reminded that every human being is so sinful that they need the Son of God to come in human flesh, to suffer the ugly death of crucifixion, and to bear God's just wrath in our place. In this meal, we are humbled. Because in coming forward, taking the bread and taking the cup, we are proclaiming to the world, we are remembering that we are ugly sinners who need a great Savior. This is humbling. And yet in this meal, God is inviting us closer to himself. As we eat and we drink and we give thanks to God for the sacrifice of Christ to repair our relationship, we are led to a greater joy and a greater fellowship with the Lord. Saints, God gives the great gift of his glory to those in grief. We serve a glorious God.